All right, let's bow for prayer, and then uh, we will we will begin. And we're in Luke chapter five, so that's where you want to turn in your Bibles um, in just a minute. Father, thank you for the beautiful morning that you have given to us. As the Scripture says, this is the day that you have made, and we are rejoicing and we're glad in it. I pray that we'll be your faithful servants in all things with opportunities that are afforded to us today. Thank you for every person who's joined with us. I pray your blessing upon them and their families in these uh, unusual and challenging days. I pray for your guidance and your strength, for your protective hand to be upon us. And uh, Father, all of us know folks who are ill, and we just pray that you will lift them up and heal them. And we'll certainly look forward to an end to this virus and give you the praise, the honor, and the glory. And we would earnestly pray that that would be soon. Father, bless our nation. Uh, We are troubled by much of what is going on in our country today. And we pray for the spirit of the living God to make himself known and to fall upon our nation. And I pray for wisdom for leaders at every level, uh, those who ask for it and those who don't. We pray that you would still give them your wisdom so that the decisions they make will honor you and be best for our country. Father, thank you for the opportunity today to study the gospel of Luke, and I pray that you'll speak to our hearts, that in all things we'll glorify you, that we'll learn, be inspired, and encouraged about what we read today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you all. We're in Luke chapter 5. If you uh, made a copy of the outline or you remember it, Uh, The first 11 verses had to do with preaching, fishing, and calling. And then verses 12 through 26 had to do with forgiving and healing. And today we come to verse 27 of chapter 5. And this one is also calling, calling and eating. Uh, I don't know about the calling part, but I certainly enjoy the eating part of that. So let's see what the scripture says, uh, beginning with the 27th verse of Luke chapter 5. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Have you ever been impressed with the immediacy of of Levi's response? And uh, It wasn't like he had anticipated the call coming today or the call at all. But he no doubt felt the compulsion of the Lord's words and of his presence. And he got up and left everything. He didn't say, just a minute, Jesus, I have to reconcile my my financial statement or let me pack up my money and then I'll come. He just got up and left everything and followed Jesus. It's amazing. Well, let me continue. Verse 29, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him, with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You can almost hear them hissing as they speak. Then verse 31, Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The truth of the matter is there are none righteous, no, not one. That's what the scripture says. 
So Jesus did not call, come to call those who think they are righteous, but he came to call sinners to repentance, and that's all of us. And my assumption is that all of us, if if not almost all of us at least, have responded to the call of Jesus to repent of our sins and to follow him. So let's look at these uh, these few verses in uh, Luke chapter 5. Verse 27 tells us that this happened quickly. So quickly after the healing of the lame man that we read in the previous verses, Jesus calls a tax collector by the name of Levi. Now the thinking of the Jewish people would have been that tax collectors were the chief of all sinners. They worked for the hated Romans in collecting taxes and really what we historically know, they extorted money from their own people. So this is a Jew extorting tax money from his own people to give to the hated Romans. So you can understand why Levi would have not won a popularity contest. They were considered to be thieves and they were supported and protected by the Romans. And obviously so had they been unprotected, uh, there would have been many days when tax collectors would not have lived to see sunset. So Jesus said to Levi, follow me. And Levi did so immediately. Now, I I fully believe that Levi had been observing, watching, listening to Jesus. I don't think that the text gives us any indication that this was the first time Levi had ever laid his eyes on Jesus. I believe he had perhaps stood at the fringe of the crowd and watched him before. I have no way of knowing that for certain. Maybe someday we can ask him that question when we see him. But my imagination says he had been watching and listening. And when Jesus called him, the compulsion of the voice of Jesus said to Levi, do it. And Levi left everything, which would have been a considerable amount of money, I'm thinking. And he left that, left a financially secure future in order to follow Jesus and no doubt suffered greatly for that following of Jesus. And ultimately as tradition has, it gave his life for the gospel. Now what I find so intriguing is what Levi did. He had a celebration with his friends so that he could introduce them to Jesus and let them know what he had chosen to do. Um, who are his friends? Well, the only people who would be friends to a tax collector were other tax collectors considered to be sinners. And so Levi wants his fellow tax collectors to meet Jesus, to meet Jesus in the hopes that they too might choose to follow the Lord. Now, I think that's fascinating. And I've said this so many times, and we've never done it. So maybe while there's still time, we need to. But every time we have baptism, we ought to have a party. You like to have a party? Sometimes we want to go to parties for any reason, any excuse to have a party. Well, what better reason could there be to have a party than to celebrate 
people coming to Christ and, and uh, their baptism. Well, that's in effect what Matthew or Levi is doing. He is um, he's having a party, a dinner, celebrating his newfound Lord and wanting other tax collectors to know him. I think it's probably the case for most Christians is that the moment at which we know and are friends with the most lost people is when we get saved. It's after that that life begins to change. And sometimes, sadly, we we pull away from unsafe friends. And I understand sometimes we have to do that because of lifestyle change. But it almost is if we begin to pull away and we just don't even know any lost people. We reach a point where we don't even know any lost people well enough to call them friends. But Levi did, at this moment, know a whole lot of friends who were who were sinners. And so he invited them to dinner. But, you know, there were other people there hanging around. I don't believe they were invited to the dinner, but they were hanging around. The dinner may have been in a courtyard or in a place where anybody could have stopped by and looked in. And so who was there besides tax collectors? Well, religious leaders. Uh, The religious leaders were there. The Pharisees, they were there. That should not surprise us. Uh, they're, they're hanging around pursuing Jesus, looking for any opportunity to be critical of him or perhaps ultimately even more than that. But verse 31, Jesus answered when these religious leaders asked his disciples, uh, why is it that your disciples or he asked him, why is it your disciples don't fast like our disciples do, like our followers? In fact, I find it, um, I find it fascinating that they were so brazen as to raise this issue. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus answers them with, with that great 31st verse. Uh, the healthy don't need a doctor. You know, we don't usually go to the doctor when we're feeling good. I know we're supposed to get regular checkups, particularly when we get to be my age and, and your age. But by and large, we, we don't want to go to see the doctor when we're feeling good, but we want the doctor when we're not feeling good. And so Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Well, the, what's the implication there? We're all sick, sick sinners. We all need the Savior. We all need the great physician. And he said, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So what Jesus is saying there, not, he's not saying, well, there are a group of people who don't need me because they're already right with God. They're, they're righteous people. He's not saying that. What he's saying is giving a picture here of there's none righteous. No, not one. I've come to call those who are open and will listen and will repent. But those of you who are the religious leaders who see yourself as righteous and perfect in the eyes of God because of your Jewish heritage, um, I've not come for you because I'm, your hearts are hard and you're not going to listen to what I have to say. So a, a great, a great verse uh, on the part of our Lord. And we're going to have some more to say about that in, in just a moment. Now I'm thankful that Jesus came to save sinners. Because that means he included me. 
what's the song we sing? Jesus included me, uh, the great gospel hymn, even me. And so Jesus came even for you and even for me. Because the reality of it is I'm in the camp with the sinners and so are you. But Jesus came and called us and we followed him. And now we are called righteous and we have been saved from our sin. And I'm so grateful. Now, what is Levi's name by which we most frequently know him? Matthew. Matthew, author of the first gospel. And he writes a beautiful gospel and he writes it with precision fitting for uh, an accountant. And so we are blessed by Levi Matthew and what he did. We'll hear from him again as we go through the gospel, but we will look forward to seeing him in heaven. And I'm, you know, I, I'd say this all the time. My imagination runs wild. And I think when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask a whole lot of questions. And I've got questions for Levi. The truth of the matter is when we see Jesus face to face, we may not have any questions. It may all be crystal clear. We may not have anything to do except worship and praise and serve him. But I've always imagined that I would have a list of questions for people like Levi and others. Well, let's go on and finish the chapter because I've uh, entitled this last section, Old and New. So let's look beginning at verse 33. Ready? They said to him, now this is still the religious leaders conversing here. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, our disciples. You know, they got all the gall in China. Now, I don't know where that term came from. I've heard it all my life. Maybe it's a southern thing. I have no idea. But you ever heard, he's got all the gall in China. Well, whatever that really means, these guys have got all the gall in China to bring up the name of John the Baptist as if they like him and consider him an ally. Oh, give me a break. They despised John the Baptist. They hated John the Baptist. But when it's convenient, they'll use him as an ally. Oh, these guys are sick. Anyway, they say, John's disciples, our good friend John, his disciples, fast and pray. And so do our disciples. But Jesus, your disciples, go on eating and drinking and partying and having a good time, and they act like they're happy. And for us, that's a problem. <laughs> that's an issue. Uh, okay, verse 34, Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. Now, what will happen when you wash the garment, having sewn that new patch into the old garment? What will happen? It will pull away and tear, won't it? Yes. And no one pours new wine 
into old wineskins. Now we've ventured into territory with which none of us are familiar, right? Well, I don't know about that, but otherwise it says the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No new, no new wine must be poured into new wineskins and no one after drinking old wine wants the new for they say the old is better. All right, let's talk about this passage, old and new. This is still taking place at Levi's celebration. They haven't moved yet. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, uh, legalistic complainers, I can't believe their use of John the Baptist as if he's their friend, but also they use their own disciples as an example. They fast and they pray, but your guys are always happy And you have too many parties, Jesus, and we don't understand how you can claim to be who you claim to be, and yet all this partying going on. Now, don't picture that as a reference to drunkenness. That's not what that means at all. But what it does mean is that the disciples with Jesus love to be happy. They love to smile. They love to celebrate. And by the view of the Pharisees, uh, one celebration is probably one too many. So Jesus then responds and draws a contrast between the old way of the Pharisees and the legalists and the new ways of himself, Jesus, the Messiah. Um, Faith in Jesus is about joy. Faith in Jesus is about joy. That's why the happiest people in the world ought to be Christians. It doesn't mean that everything that happens to us and in our lives is is a cause for smiling or a cause for laughing. It It is not. Um, some of you today don't feel good. You don't feel like laughing or smiling, and that's absolutely understandable. But the joy of the Christian is what's found deep in our hearts that is our possession regardless of circumstances and cannot be taken away from us. So Jesus draws a contrast between the no joy of the Pharisees and the joy of his disciples. And he makes a wedding analogy. We're familiar with weddings. Um, the bridegroom has arrived. We're going to talk about Jewish weddings in a moment, but the bridegroom has arrived. So when the bridegroom's here, that's no time for fasting. It's time for celebrating. And the fasting will come later. Uh, Jesus will be, will be crucified and then raised from the dead, go ascend to heaven. There'll be a chance for fasting later. Now, here's a picture of uh, Jewish weddings of the day. First, there would be a, a contract. The parents of bride and groom would agree uh, that their children would marry, and a price was then paid uh, by the bride's, uh, to the bride's father on the part of the groom's father, or if that father was deceased, it would be the groom himself who would pay the price. And that began the marriage of the man and the woman, although they did not yet live together and were not yet intimate with with one another. So that was a contract time. Then came the preparation time. The groom would return to his father's house to prepare a place for he and his wife to live. Often, that residence would be with 
the parents of, of the groom. And the bride, meanwhile, back at her residence with her parents, would watch and wait for the return of her husband, and she would ready herself for marriage so that she would be prepared at any moment when the groom would return for her. Now, that doesn't mean she was dressed for the wedding ceremony at any moment, but it meant she had everything ready so that she could change and make the move quickly. Now, when everything was ready and her father gave permission, the groom would return, and that was the time then for the wedding celebration. So we've had a contract, we've had preparation time, and then we have the wedding celebration itself, which traditionally would have been a seven-day period. Now, those of you who have um, had kids to get married, particularly if you're if you had daughters, and you know traditionally the bride's parents foot a far larger portion of the expense of a wedding than does the groom's parents traditionally, and uh, so imagine. You know, it's expensive enough when it's a rehearsal day and the wedding day, but imagine if it were for seven days, a seven-day celebration full of, of of eating and dancing and music and and all kinds of celebration. And then after the celebration, the bride and groom will actually begin to live together in marriage and, of course, experience the intimacy that goes with that marriage relationship. So that's the process of what we're talking about here. And so Jesus is referring to the celebration time, a time of rejoicing and saying that's no time for fasting. That's no time for long faces. That's no time for sackcloth and ashes. That's a time for celebration. And Jesus' picture that he is giving to everyone who's listening is that he is joy. I am come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full, John 10, 10. Then he shifts and talks about garments and wineskins. Um, I'll show my age as if I needed to, but I'll show my age when I say that I can remember a number of times growing up when I would get a hole in my blue jeans. Maybe the knee, that was most often, you know, you kids get on the ground, drag their knees, all that stuff. So I get holes in my blue jeans and those blue jeans were still good. There's no need to throw them away. Now, back then we didn't wear holy jeans like they do now. Um, that, that was not the style, but you know, when I would have a hole in my jeans, my mother would take an old worn out raggedy pair of jeans and she would cut piece of square or whatever and, and and sew it some of you've done this you know what I'm talking about sew it to the jeans to cover the hole and uh, it's like having a new pair of jeans now if she had taken a new pair of jeans and cut cloth and sewn it to the old pair of jeans first time it got washed what would have happened 
well, the, 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 the new patch would have shrunk and it would have pulled away and I would have had a hole in my jeans again. So nobody does that. She already took your, your mother or you, if you did this, take an old patch, sew it to the old jeans and you're good to go for, for quite a while. So that's the picture Jesus is giving. You don't take a new patch and sew it to an old pair of jeans or in their case, I guess an old robe or whatever cloak. And he also says you don't put new wine into old wineskins. Old wineskins begin to get brittle and fragile. You put new wine as it begins to ferment and, and, and there begins to be the gases go to work and there's a swelling of the wineskins. Then the wineskins would burst and all the wine would go out on the ground and you would have lost all of it. So, uh, you don't put old, uh, new wine into old wineskins, whether you put new wine into new wineskins. So Jesus is saying the old represents the old way of Israel and the new represents me. The new represents the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now we, we get that. We get that. And so did they. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying to him. And the disciples, as they listened, loved it. Uh, the Pharisees didn't because they knew that he was directing some of his comments right at them. He never shied away from that. And they didn't like it. And they grow more and more and more determined um, to do away with their problem as time goes by. So uh, Jesus, if you want to remember something about that passage other than the illustrations that Jesus gives, just remember he brings joy, not sadness. He brings joy. And we ought to be a reflection of that joy uh, in our lives. I know it was easier for me. You remember back in the old days, uh, mainly when we were an old worship center, for those of you who are here that far back, um, when the uh, minister of music and the pastor would sit on the platform and uh, I'd look out at the, at the audience. We don't, we don't do that anymore. Uh, very few churches do that anymore. Most time the, Pastor will sit right on the front. When it's time for him, he'll go up. Other staff members or lay people who participate go up. Worship minister will stay up there and lead the music. Then he'll come down and sit. That's what we do. But I can remember back in the days um, when I sat up there, I guess who I was looking at? I was looking at you. Now, y'all all look at me. Now the tables have been reversed. <laughs> but uh I was looking at the at the congregation, and there would be sometimes when Brother Larry and then later Brother Gary would lead us in a, one of those joyful, joyful songs, and, and I would look out and I would see people who looked like they were nauseous, uh, they were sick at their stomach, or they looked so sad, and 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 they, they, but they were singing joyful songs looking like they just lost their dog. And so there were some times when uh, some of you remember this, I'd get, I'd just walk right up and I'd say, excuse me, Larry, I have something to say. Bless his heart. First time that happened, I thought Larry's going to have a heart attack. So he stepped aside and, and I would say, you know, we're singing a joyful song. You look like you're ill. So let's reflect what we're singing. 
And that would do the trick most of the time. Now, there were a few hardcore folks who I think became more determined to look even sadder, but most folks responded to that and they would smile and, and they would, you know, remember, you know, that's a reflection of what's on the inside. So I love it when, um, now I, I, in the first service, I look up at the choir and I see not everybody, but I see a lot of our choir just smiling and, and, uh, Karen Vassar, I've singled you out. I don't know how many times. I don't mean to embarrass you, but I love to watch Karen sing when she's in the choir because she she sings with a big smile. Uh, Roseanne, you do that. I, I know you were here. I guess you're still here somewhere. I guess I better quit naming names or I'm going to miss somebody. Mary, you do that. Mary McDaniel. I love watching people smile when they sing. So, I know this coming Sunday, you're going to be sitting in your living room or wherever you're, you know, wherever you're watching and you may be alone or maybe with members of the family. Smile. And when we're able to get back together, remember to smile when you're singing. We have so much for which to be grateful. Now, did I just chase a rabbit down a long rabbit hole? Yeah, I did. Okay. Forgive me. Let's get back to the scripture and let's go to chapter six. And I've entitled this Jesus and the Sabbath. Well, you know what's going to happen here, don't you? You know. All right. What's the, what's the Jewish Sabbath? Just in case somebody doesn't know. Sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. Okay. That's the Sabbath. So here we are. Verse one, chapter six. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands. And eat the kernels. So what, what do we got here? We got a snack. They're hungry. They're walking, exerting. And the, so they're, they're getting a snack. Okay. To tide them over. So some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Say what? Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Bingo, whammo. I can guarantee you that most of those Pharisees standing there turned red in the face, and they were angry to hear Jesus say that. Now let's move on. Finish reading the text. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled, palsied hand. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So this is a proactive group. (laughs) They're looking for a reason. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking. And said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? He looked around at them and all of them, he looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so. 
and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, the absurdity of this can't be lost on any of us. Instead of rejoicing at the healing of a man, they were furious and began to talk among themselves, how are we going to get rid of Jesus? Now, let's think about this passage. They're apparently in a rural area rather than uh, in a city. Uh, It is the Sabbath, and the ever-present legalists, the ever-present Pharisees are out to get Jesus already, and this incident is going to make it worse. And so they saw the potential of going after the disciples. You know, they can get to Jesus through them. Really, I think a modern term that we use for this is uh, stalking. That uh, They're stalking Jesus. That's what they're doing. So the disciples pluck a few grains in their hands, rub them together, and it's not a five-course meal. Didn't require them to stop and build a fire and uh, slaughter an animal. They're just hungry, and so they get a few kernels of, of, of grain, and they eat it. But it's the Sabbath, and the Pharisees say, this is work, and your disciples shouldn't be doing work on the Sabbath. What they are failing to realize is that the Sabbath is a gift from God. The Sabbath is a gift from God. I want you to imagine our world, our country, our lives without a Sabbath. Where do you think the idea for a day off from work came from? It came from the scripture, the Sabbath. Nowadays, most people get Saturday and Sunday, but there was once a time, even in our own nation, where the work week was six days, not five. And so the the idea of a day off comes from Scripture, the Sabbath. It's a gift from God so we can slow down. We can relax from the daily grind, and we can worship God, spend time with family, have a day of rest, whatever happened to that idea. Now, breaking Sabbath is serious. In in the Jewish faith, that, that is serious. But this, don't we think that this is a little extreme on the part of, of the Pharisees? Well, of course it is. Now, uh, if you go to, as many of you have been, you go to Israel today, and the Sabbath is important. It's important to Jewish people. It's a day of worship, a day of celebration, and there are rules attached to it which are perfectly legitimate. And a day apart from work is absolutely legitimate. That's part of what Sabbath is about, taking a deep breath and and resting and relaxing and worshiping God and celebrating with your family. But to think that the rubbing together of a few grains in the disciples' hands and, and helping to 
calm their stomachs and their, their hunger to say that that is work and that is sinful and that is wrong means that the Pharisees have lost sight of the real meaning of the Sabbath. It's fascinating today to go to Israel and see the Jewish people celebrate Sabbath. Um, if you've been there, you know it, it's def, it's a change for everybody. You you're a Gentile, but when sundown Friday comes to sundown Saturday, it things are different, and there are things that even though you're not Jewish, you can't do. Um, but it's fascinating to see the celebration. I've, I've often related this because I discovered it by accident. Nobody warned me ahead of time, but. You know, most of the time our tour groups stay in high-rise hotels. And when the Sabbath comes, it used to be that all the elevators were what they call Shabbat elevators. Shabbat is the Sabbath. Shabbat elevators, which means they're pre-programmed to stop at every floor going up and stop at every floor going down. Now, most of the hotels reserve some of the elevators to be Shabbat elevators and the others are for Gentiles like us. Because when you go in the elevator, if you mash the button, that's work. And they're not supposed to do that. So um, I discovered that by accident. I was up high and as, as things would have it, I was up high on a, and I got on the elevator and I'm aware it's a Sabbath, but I have no idea what that means with regard to the elevator. And I get on. And we start stopping at every floor. What what in the world is going on here? The first couple of floors when we stopped, I I thought it was because somebody was waiting at that floor to get on. There was nobody there. Well, I inquired and I found out what what it's all about. But also fascinating was to be in Jerusalem on the Sabbath, which is the place to be on the Sabbath if you ever go. Uh, to be in Jerusalem on the Sabbath and to see the Orthodox getting off from work and hurrying to get home. Sometimes they would go into stores to buy something. Uh, and, and then if it was getting really close to sunset and they were not home yet, it's quite a sight to see a, a large group of Orthodox Jews with their hats and their robes and their tassels and running through the streets of Jerusalem so that they can get home before the start of of the Sabbath. Well, what we're seeing in the part of the Pharisees is this rules, 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 legalism. They've lost sight of the reason that God gave the Sabbath to man. You can't cook. You can't light a fire. It really becomes, it becomes hard to keep all the rules on the Sabbath because you're going to forget and, and do something you shouldn't do. And a lot of those rules I would support fully because they are in order to secure the day and to make sure that people are worshiping and celebrating and not working. However, what we find in this text is silly. They aren't harvesting grain. They're just plucking a little bit so they can have a snack. But verse 2, if you look back there, where it says, Some of the Pharisees ask, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? That implies that Sabbath regulations are more important than human need. In um, Hosea 6.6, 6, 
the scripture says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And I think that's what we see in this text. It had ceased for the Pharisees being worship and an acknowledgement of God, and it had become the enforcement of rule-keeping on the part of, of the religious leaders. So uh, you want to be a legalist? Um, then if you want to do that, then make our religious rules more important than Jesus himself, and you'll be officially a legalist. Now, the Pharisees charged Jesus with breaking the law. Jesus, of course, denies their charge in verses 3, 4, and 5. And to illustrate it, he brings up history. When David was running from Saul with his men, uh, David's out, uh, Saul's out to kill David. And David and his men are hungry, and they know that there's one safe place uh, to be, and that's the, the, the place of worship. And so they go there and they eat the bread of his, of his presence and they're not condemned for doing so. In fact, David ate some and gave to his, gave to his men. So Jesus uses that as an illustration of saying, and I'm the Messiah and it's okay for my guys to eat a few grains of bread. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Now let me uh, tell you the way Mark says it in his gospel or the way it's written in Mark's gospel, chapter 2, verse 27. Uh, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Pharisees got it mixed up. Sabbath is made for man. They thought man was made for the Sabbath. And so Jesus wants to remind them of the real purpose of the Sabbath. So serve the Lord, not the law. And then verses uh, 6 through 11, again, an elaboration on that. Serve the Lord, not the law. Is it right to do good any time or to do harm or to not do good, which is doing harm? It is always the right time to do good. And so Jesus heals the man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. And instead of everybody celebrating, the religious leaders are angry. You know, that isn't that, isn't that sad? What if that person were you or what if that was your loved one? And maybe you had been praying for years that your loved one be be healed. And the longer nothing happened, the longer, the more discouraged you became. And this is just not going to happen. This is an impossibility. How is a person with a shriveled hand, shriveled arm, whatever it may have looked like, how is it going to get back to normal? And, and the religious leaders criticized Jesus for healing your loved one. Um, Jesus has a purpose for everything he's doing, and don't think he didn't know it was the Sabbath. Purposefully healing this man on the Sabbath in order to point to himself as the Messiah and as the Lord of the Sabbath and to remind the people what Sabbath is all about. Now, as we continue to go through Luke, we're going to encounter things happening on the Sabbath a whole lot more. So we've not visited that subject for the last time. Now, we'll start here next time with verse 12. The 12 disciples, also called the apostles, we're going to read their names and spend just a moment there, not long, because if I get into a discussion of each apostle, we'll be camped out here for four or five more weeks. I don't want to do that. So we're going to talk about that next week and then move on and hopefully finish the sixth chapter because there's a lot of exciting things, teaching and 
the works of Jesus in the rest of the sixth chapter. So there we go. I think I've said all uh, my throat can take for today. And I love you all and thank you for uh, being here. I hope you'll have a good rest of the day. And I'll be looking for you virtually on Sunday, okay? You're welcome to stay as long as you want. I'm going to pray. Leave when you need to. Stay as long as you want. God bless you all. Father, thank you for this good day. Thank you for our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, for his death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, for the gift of eternal life. Bless us through the rest of this day that we may be a reflection of Christ before others. In whose name I pray, amen. God bless you. See you next time.